Hello and welcome to a special installment of Unraveling Religion. I'm here with my best friend Lisa Carly Hotelling in her 2001 Hyundai Elantra in Buffalo, New York. It is about 11.30 on a Saturday night and uh, this is generally when uh, Lisa and I just begin our conversations, right? So um, just a little background information uh, about uh, how this came to being. Uh, I had to really coax cajole, trick, and yes, even convince Lisa to participate in this dialogue. And I'm very happy that uh, I've done so. I want to welcome you, Lisa, to uh, Unraveling Religion. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing awesome. Awesome. I'm glad to be here. So, Lisa, we're armed with uh, some stuff, right? <laughs> we are armed with some stuff indeed. <laughs> As usual, I mean, we've got all the essentials, right? We have everything we could possibly need. It's true, and, and then some, because we have, we've got uh, Mike's Hard uh, Lemonade, Pringles, American Spirits, Eckhart Tolle, Rumi, and what else? Kaplow. We have Roshi Philip Kaplow's Zen Teachings and Practice, so... Um, and each other. And each other, which... which <clears throat> which is the most vital aspect so um, but uh, tonight in talking uh, with uh, Richard Wicca who um, is the brainchild of Think Twice Radio um, we were discussing a lot of different things and one of the things that came up was identity and uh, Lisa and I often talk about identity and from approaching it from multiple various aspects and deconstructing it in many different ways and I thought it'd be a good theme for the show and um, and just wanted to uh, introduce that notion that that'll be sort of the theme for tonight's show uh, so in talking about uh, identity Lisa um, where to begin where do we begin with identity well I think the point that Richard was bringing up earlier about where the locus of identity is uh-huh is probably a good beginning point. Uh, do we have an internal, do we derive our identity from an internal sense, or do we extrapolate it from an interpretation of our perception of the environment, or is it some, I guess, constellation of both? Right, right, yeah. So, and it's interesting because um, Richard, Richard and I, and uh, my friend Graham Sears, who's been a guest on Unraveling Religion, uh, have gone back and forth about uh, pretty much the nature of uh, what is truth and what is reality, and uh, identity fits into that nicely, I think. And um, I thought that, uh, you know, my approach of identity is one that um, I think is best articulated by Eckhart Tolle's, you know, he approaches it in a few of his works. I love his audiobooks, and uh, there are two that come to mind. One we were just listening to driving over here, and that is uh, In the Presence of a Great Mystery. And in that, uh, Tolle talks about thought forms and about how uh, the child and the toy um, are the first formation of a story that we create in our minds about who we are and um, how that toy as the child grows in years transitions to uh, relationships uh, thought forms of beautiful partners or attractive partners or some quality of partners that are special that add to the meaning of what that person's identity is so that people in a sense 
who are wondering why relationships may not work, um, may be approaching it not from a position of what may I give, offer, and how may I serve this person, but what is this person adding to my identity? And so um, I just wanted to know your thoughts about that, Lisa. I totally agree with that. You do, yeah. <clears throat> Completely. Um, I was just having a conversation with, a, with another very dear friend recently about the same exact question. And my perspective is that rather than sort of coming into relationship or even if we're not in relationship and we're seeking relationship that we're often looking for as you said the qualities that another person has that either we feel can accentuate what we already feel about ourselves or that they have something within them that we feel we lack in other words more generally that we come into relationship seeking wholeness and I guess my own philosophical position in that regard is that what would it be like to come into a relationship already feeling whole? Right. Right. So, yeah, oftentimes we, uh, we don't examine the reasons why we enter into relationship because of socialization and biology. And so what winds up happening is that uh, the beginning of a relationship in, inherent in its beginning is sort of a, uh, a story that we tell ourselves that is an end of our story or a completion of our story of who we are, that wholeness uh, that we are all seeking, which really um, I feel is like an aspect of misdirection or it's not necessarily misdirection, but um, really that that wanting to merge into wholeness with another human being is is an impetus that is directed towards people because that's what we see and relate to but that same drive if turned inward um, can be a very powerful uh, tool to uh, commune with our ourself which is is sometimes fractured but inherently whole it's our psychology psyche and, and sort of belief systems that don't allow us to see that clearly. Do you agree? What do you think? Yeah, I think I definitely agree with that. And, you know, you and I were talking about this the other day that I think it really depends on your orientation or perception of truth, as you and Richard and Graham have been talking about. Uh Um, And whether you have this sense of that there's an absolute truth or that truth is something that evolves through the process of being fully present in the moment. Right. And, and how I, how I understand that distinction is that I think if you believe or hold this notion of an absolute truth, then you seek relationship and you seek another person as the truth. Right. And that somehow through communion, communion with this other person, that you're going to arrive at some truth that doesn't already exist. And I guess that sort of connects to this idea of wholeness, that if you feel that within yourself, you embody this wholeness, then I think that minimizes or takes the edge off of that neediness, that searching for the someone else to arrive at some absolute truth that feels 
absent from yourself. Right, right. So, um, so I don't know if you, if listeners have uh, any idea about me at all, but um, I did want to ha- give a little background about Lisa, and uh, just wanted to, if you could talk a little bit about um, where you're coming at this from a uh, existential, phenomenological, philosophical perspective. Right? <clears throat> yeah, I mean that's a big that's a big bite to chew off, but. Uh, but, um, yeah, my orientation, anybody that knows me knows that I'm oriented um, through my own lens of an existential perspective, a phenomenological perspective. And uh, for people who aren't familiar with what that means or um, who don't have a real uh, experiential sense of it yeah, yeah. and who, who might perhaps have an intellectual sense of it, yeah. Um, my understanding and the way that I try to embody that and live that is that um, that it's the experience itself that allows us to connect most deeply and authentically on all levels. Right. First with ourselves, second with our immediate experiencing, and third with the great mystery that lies outside of ourselves. Um, and I even say that cautiously because, you know, yeah, lying outside of ourselves, you know, my own, what what is is that? that? Exactly. I mean, my own belief, as you know, is that there is sort of this universal, um, presence, energy, um, that is both a part of me and connects me to other people as well as their experience of the universal might be very different. Um, and so I guess I come to this conversation and I come to all of the conversations that we've had from this position of subjective truth and so what is subjective truth? Right. And so what I mean by that is that the truth is in the unfolding and that somehow it's experienced rather than it's something that's sought after there's a knowing in the moment Mm -hmm. there's there's this sense of it being in alignment with our authentic expression of the moment and our perception of the moment and a lot of times like because you and i both have a background in mental health that uh you know the example that we often use is well i don't fully understand the subjective reality of someone let's say for example someone who's sociopathic or or who's in the midst of a psychotic episode and so my what i try to do in my relations with people is i try to best understand what their subjective reality is as it's unfolding in the moment sure sure um and that what you're talking about has been approached by different people in different ways but excuse me one of the um One of the books that come to mind is uh, Gary Zukov and his book, uh, The Seed of the Soul, which was uh, a follow-up, a a follow-up book that in content was not, um, was not associated with his original book, The Dancing Wooly Masters, but came out of his experiences writing The Dancing Wooly Masters, in which he found, um, he was a layman studying quantum physics, I think and uh, found that uh, amazing synchronicities began to come about in the writing of the Dancing Wooly Masters. And um, 
his observation of that process lent itself to his writing The Seat of the Soul. And in a nutshell, The Seat of the Soul is about uh, what Zukov defies, de <laughs> defines as uh, authentic power. And that authentic power, he says, is the alignment with the personality of the soul. And so it sounds like that's one approach of what you're speaking about. What do you think, Lisa? Yeah, I think that's... Uh, I, I definitely uh, understand where Zukov is coming from from that perspective. and uh, But I think that we get into nebulous territory when we start using language like the soul. I agree. Because we don't really clearly have that defined. And, and from my perspective, I wonder how important it is that, that we define it. Sure. Is it necessary or is it superfluous? Or is it just a construct um, for our own infinitude? Um, yeah. Maybe that's a, you know, a, another way to explain something that is, that is inexplicable and that is both um, within our grasp of the moment but it's out of our intellectual grasp. Yeah. So again, I think the infinitude of our being is something that in the moment we can have a connection with another person or with a waterfall or something in nature with our child or whatever experience we happen to be in listening to a beautiful symphony or a poetry reading as we did tonight yep. um, that connects us with that sense of our infinitude. Yep. And maybe that's a way to construct uh, the word soul might be a way to sort of uh, conceptualize, intellectualize yeah. th this notion of infinitude. Right, right. Yeah, no, what is the soul? I mean, that's like, what is God? I mean, that's, right. you know, it's... What is it, truth? What is truth? I mean, these things are, these are lang language... Uh, lingual constructs i mean they're just constructs they're they're uh pointers to something that is ineffable and uh really uh beyond the description of language and um uh so yeah but um you know i think it's really interesting lisa because one of the things that arises for me here now is um i know you have done a lot of work um as i have uh, gone through a long uh, process, a birthing process, to bring who you are uh, in this moment that has been both uh, a lot of work, but also there's something inherent in you that has not changed, or would you disagree with that statement? Hmm. <clears throat> I think that perhaps the unique position of being adopted mm. um, comes into play in that regard. Yeah. Um, to the extent that I think I came into the world a bit unmoored. Yeah. And what the hell does that mean, unmoored? Unmoored? <laughs> yeah. Like you know. <laughs> You're Miss <GRE. laughs> <laughs> you know, like a ship <laughs> out in sea okay, <laughs> without okay. an anchor. There you go. I understand now. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just kind of feeling a little bit lost on the waves, you know? Sure, yeah. 
not being anchored particularly by this sense of oh this is my family yeah yeah, you yeah. know but ultimately that is our existential condition exactly right? yeah. and i think that maybe you know when i've pondered it you know deeply as you know that i have yeah, that yeah, I, have. I think that that's been my draw in fact to existential thought is this notion of that you know i sort of came in on these very stormy seas without a real uh without land in sight without uh an anchor as i said before with the illusion of an anchor, without yeah. any illusions i think that's even a better qualification yeah, yeah. in fact uh you know that i didn't have the uh the illusions that a lot of other people have of like, oh, I'm connected, I'm attached to this particular family or, you know, whatever that is. And, you know, certainly I was adopted into, you know, a loving family and, you know, that was great. Um, but I think that... Uh, Did that, we want to talk about attachment theory here? Why don't we? Yeah, we can definitely talk about attachment. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about attachment theory. Yeah, I mean, my uh, as, as Joel well knows, um, you know, I've done a lot of uh, research and thinking and writing on attachment theory um, and... Uh, in my <laughs> own me. in my own uh, academic work uh, as a as both a master's level and doctoral level student of psychology and um, I wrote my master's thesis on motherhood identity and so I had to study a lot around attachment issues and uh, you know basically attachment theory holds that the first weeks months of a newborn's life are yeah. critical yeah. For the formation of attachment to the mother um, and that happens through very complex processes that we, even now we don't fully understand but we certainly the know the neurobiochemical yeah. exactly right and you know we certainly do understand that there's an exchange of oxytocin vasopressin which are hormones that we now understand uh encourage and facilitate bonding um and uh, and so I guess one of the questions arises is, you know, what happens to a child that, that doesn't get that right. foundation right. at an early age? Right. And, um, and, uh, and I think that certainly looking at the trajectory of my own life, the trajectory of my own relationships, yeah. that I can definitely see where that has had some impact in my life. Sure. However, I, I don't see it as a negative, uh, having, having had negative consequences, particularly in my life. Others might perceive that differently. But again, being a phenomenologist, you know, I come from the perspective of what's what is my experience. And what is negative, what is positive. And what is negative and what is positive. Those are, those are judgment values those are judgment, that are ascribed. Exactly. Yeah. And, and for me, it's very much about um, that... Uh, I feel that those experiences have been, uh, that foundation in those early experiences have been very positive for me because I think it pushed me much earlier away from the illusion of this sense of um, someone's always going to be there for you, um, that, I, that I have to find my place within the world and within relationship. And because of that early unmooring, that I think that I had to really rely on myself to sort of find that point of 
being? What is, who am I? Yeah. And, and a lot fundamental, of... A fundamental question for all of a us. A fundamental question for all in of all us. In all mystical traditions, it yes. is the fundamental question, who yes. am I? Or what am I? And I think what I've seen and what I've experienced as a difference between the way I go about answering that question and the way that maybe others go about answering that question is, I think for myself, I'm less likely to look outward to other relationships to answer that question and more inclined to look inward uh-huh. for, to, to, to answer that question. Sure, sure. And, and I use the word answer carefully because I don't conceive that there really is an answer, but I guess in terms of where to direct the work, the work is more directed inward than it is outward in relationships. And there's an integration and understanding, right? It's not arriving at some place. But exactly. Just, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Oh, certainly not arriving at, yeah, at yeah. some place for yeah. sure. Ever. Yeah. Ever. Ever. Right. ever. This continues on. Correct. Yeah. yeah. In my experience, that, In my that's experience true. Too, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, with with attachment theory, um, let's talk a little bit about how that relates to identity. Well, I think that uh, you know, I mean, the only place that I can speak about that from uh, is a more intellectual, academic place, uh, and the reason why I say that is because. You know, as Eckhart Tolle was talking about as well, that, you know, a a very young infant, a few weeks old, few months old, they don't have the linguistic capacity to be able to describe their experience. Yet, I want to point out that um, because I've been in in, uh, going back and forth with uh, some people on Facebook, actually, um, about uh, the nature of uh, sort of uh, truth and truth value and... um, consciousness and uh really uh a part of that is a part of that is recognizing that you know the infant's experience from from what i gather is really uh a slow eroding away of this universal experiential connection with all you know, and um, that slowly erodes away through this process of uh, uh, social socialization and um, growing biology, um, biological processes, and so then we get into the place of of story making or storytelling, which is um, where where uh, identity and ego come into play, right? Yeah, that's my understanding as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think that going back to kind of your question about, um, you know, these, uh, you know, what the early infant experience is that, you know, we don't, we don't entirely know, of course, because they don't have the linguistic tools to be able to share with us what their experience is. Um, but I think that, um, I'm not sure. I lost my train of thought. Beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) Take a sip of some white tire. Exactly. So, yeah. So, Lisa and I... What did you ask me? uh, I don't remember. (laughs) Nor do I care. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, I totally lost. I was like, what the fuck did you ask me? No, I think we were talking about um, identity (laughs) and its relation to... uh, Identity in its relation to attachment and uh, identity formation. And I think where I was going with this is I was wondering if you want to talk a little bit about your work um, 
both and go wherever you want with this, but personally and professionally with motherhood identity? Um, well, I think that, uh, you know, my, uh, my interest in this topic, uh, of motherhood identity really arose after the birth of my first child. Um, but even more significantly after the birth of my second child yeah. and they're two and a half years apart. Yeah. Um, and my daughter now is 10 and my son is seven. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, so this has been a, obviously a decade long journey. Um, <clears throat> but what my experience was of motherhood of early motherhood, particularly was of, uh, extreme ambivalence. Mm -hmm extreme isolation yeah. and a real gestalt shift huh. from the life I had known before, right. which was very social and engaging yeah. where I had a multitude of friends right. into a world that felt, uh, very isolated of raising a child of, um, being disconnected from a social world in a sure. sense. Sure. And, uh, and, and I, I never talked to anybody about it. I never shared anybody shared with anybody what my experiences were. Um, one, because I was pathologizing them. And two, because uh, even more deeply, I think that uh, I really felt that it was something unique to me. Right. I didn't believe that other mothers were sort of experiencing this. And, um, and, and by, by this, what I mean is this extreme ambivalence. And I mean ambivalence in, you know, the real truest sense of the definition of, you know, feeling this deep love for my child, but at the same time feeling resentful of the new isolation and disconnectedness that I felt from the broader world. Mm -hmm. And that disconnectedness from the world actually led to a deeper disconnectedness to myself. Sure, sure. Um, which is interesting kind of given what we were just talking about, about having this internal locus of identity yes. versus an external locus of identity. Right. And I think that maybe the crack in the, uh, in the wall that I thought I had so carefully constructed up to that point really was that maybe I wasn't so internally derived as mm -hmm. I had originally thought. And so after the birth of my son, um, two and a half years later, I really came up against this very, very deep, it's a, it was an ennui, but it was something even deeper than that. And, um, you know, I, I shirk back a little bit from calling it a postpartum depression, just because I think that again, is sort of pathologizing the experience. Sure, sure. And for me, I'm more interested in talking from an experiential place. Yeah. Um, and because, because one of the things that labels serve to do is they sort of, uh, oh, we understand it now we can move on. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, I get what the, that is without delving into the emotional content that is really there. That's great. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and so, uh, for me, the experience was, um, so difficult in fact that, uh, my previous work with foster kids, uh, which was what originally my master's thesis was going to be about actually, uh, the identity development in foster care youth was my original thesis topic, um, really gave way to, um, me having a conversation with my wonderful advisors at the university I attended who said to me, well, you know, this motherhood stuff that you're going through that you're sharing with us, why not make that your, your thesis? 
and uh, and so I uh, sat with that idea for a little bit and decided that I was so embroiled in this world that it was really all I could talk about right. and um, and so uh, a couple things happened for me at that time that sure, sort of sure. kind of broke things open and the first was that um, that uh, I espousing to the uh, theory of attachment parenting yeah. um, I wore my both of my children in a baby sling and a lot of other mothers were sort of noticing that this that that I was doing this and asked me where I had gotten my sling and I made my sling mm -hmm. and so they asked me if I could make them one and so I started kind of this small business of making baby slings and you know at first it was just sort of a commercial enterprise and you know this is going to make a little bit of money and you know get me doing something aside from just focusing on the children but really it, it turned out to be this amazing gift and, how, how? and, and these synchronicities like yeah, you were yeah, talking yeah. about. How did it turn out to be an amazing gift? Well, amazingly, because what I offered to these mothers was not just here, buy this sling and go home and good luck with it. But I basically said, you know, after the baby is born, I'll help you fit it fit the baby in it, make sure that you're comfortable in it, show you how to use it, you know, you know, in vivo, like here's the baby and let's figure this out. And so what that allowed me was a really privileged position mm -hmm. in these mother's lives where they were inviting me into their homes weeks, sometimes days after their f first child was born. And what I realized was Many of the women, in fact, I have to say a good, a vast majority of the women with whom I worked really were experiencing um, very similar ennui, uh, anxiety. When you uh, say ennui, could you just Like a that? boredom, yeah, yeah. like a, you know, kind of a what their their life lo lost some of the luster that it had previously had lack of, lack of purpose and meaning lack of purpose and meaning um and uh you know this sense of uh just i think such a gestalt shift and and really i think one of the one of the issues is that in our culture we don't have good rituals to sort of welcome women into motherhood it's literally you give birth and now you have this child and oftentimes we don't have our mothers or grandmothers or aunts or other women around to sort of help facilitate no that community. process no community and i know we've spoken about we've this. spoken about this at length yeah, yeah. absolutely um so I really was invited into this very privileged space with these women because maybe they didn't feel entirely comfortable talking to their partner about what they were experiencing in the same way that I wasn't, or they weren't comfortable talking to family about it or even other mothers. And so for some reason, me coming into that space as a near stranger allowed them to sort of share with me what they were really experiencing in the moment as it was unfolding sure. and and this and let me just preface yeah, yeah. this and let everyone know that lisa lisa by her very nature and way of being is uh what they call in psychology an opener <laughs> <laughs> which is uh uh people a, a relationship that is developed very quickly where people feel very comfortable with you and divulge in in a very genuine and authentic way um their story right you find that that's a part of your experience right thank you i i, I appreciate that well it's true that's a very gracious compliment 
It's just the truth. <laughs> Anyhow. Thank you. Um, and in these moments, as these women are sort of, you know, sharing with me what's unfolding for them, what I realized is that they had the courage to speak about what their experience was, and I didn't. And my own lack of courage both frightened me and embarrassed me and and I felt called to if I was going to be in this privileged position to hold this space for these women yeah. then I felt a responsibility to do that for myself that that if I'm going to be able to authentically hold this place that I'm being called unexpectedly to do that I needed to do some work on myself mm -hmm. to really be able to hold that space adequately and and to honor their experience um to walk the walk basically yeah, yeah. and and so then I began to look at my own mothering experience and really come to terms with the the actual experience of it what was I experiencing and so concomitantly as I said I began working on my thesis let me just stop you there sure, and sure. ask how do you do that how do you for people who are ordering yeah <laughs> yeah i mean that was a real i'll tell you that was extraordinarily difficult yeah. um you know i'm glad you sort of stopped me in that place because yeah. it, it yes it, because i make it sound like you know yeah okay all of a sudden i just decided no what it really meant for me what how i experienced that was that that when i was with my children i was really trying to be as fully present with what was arising in me at a given moment with the children. And I'm sad to say that in my experience and in many of the experiences that uh, other mothers graciously shared with me, that what we often found ourselves coming up against was rage, yeah. anger, rage, um, sure. and really fairly inexplicable mm -hmm. for most of us. You know, it was like, why am I so angry? Where is this anger coming from? And, um, and so, uh, being the you know dutiful intellect uh, that I'm supposed to be as an academic, um, and writing a Richard you know nerd exactly right, and and you know and and uh, you know writing a master's thesis you know and all of, for all that is supposed to purport to be, um, I uh, you know set out to create this eloquent mythology of what the mothering experience was like yeah. using my own experience and then sort of validating it and verifying it and uh you know integrating it with what other women shared with me and checking and rechecking and you know crafted something that i thought was magnificent and wonderful <laughs> and passable and you know would give me those glorious ma letters behind my name and um and uh so I gave it to a very dear friend of mine who's a family doctor and uh, said, uh, you know, would you mind taking a look at this and just giving me your, you know, just your quick feedback? And she looked it over, you know, and was like, wow, this is really beautiful and eloquent. And, and um, where's the rage? Yeah, yeah. good question. Right? <laughs> right. And I was like, the rage? <laughs> What are you talking about? <laughs> I don't have any rage. <laughs> what? <laughs> no! <laughs> Getting angrier by the moment. Sure. Um, and, uh, and realized, oh shit, like, this is crap. Like, I've just 
totally like what Eckhart Tolle was talking about. Intellectualized. Is totally creating these, you know, content formations and, you know, nice intellectual niceties around yeah. like these really deep and emotional places. And I think we all do that. And I, th and I just want to stop Please. you there because I think um, in my own process, uh, you know, part of the difficulty is that we don't have language for the emotional terrain and the varied emotional terrain that we experience in the human condition. So that when we try to articulate things and point them um, point them out um, linguistically, there's a great gap. There's a great gap in what other people understand within themselves, what I understand within myself, how comfortable and, and, and fluent I am in my own language as opposed to somebody else's. And I think um, part of this is just the external uh, uh, impetus to the external emphasis on our life, you know, that there's a kind of neglect of the inner life. Um, and it's uh, a collective condition that we are socialized in, which is perpetuated in a capitalistic uh, consumerism culture um, that uh, is problematic. Because well, and, and that devalues process, like we were just talking it about. It devalues process. And, and really, uh, when you want to talk about... Uh, what our experience is versus what is our experience I guess you could just stop it there what is our experience and what are, what are we distracting ourselves from internally that is so terrifying you know I think that that's a really fundamental question you know especially in this and you, you can see it it permeates our society and I don't mean to get off on a tangent here but um with with the the hyper violent media, the hyper sexualized media, and it it's it's reflection and perpetration of uh, violence in our culture that's experiential that is seen one against the other, um, and really, from my perspective, that I've been able to overcome great violence that was done to me. Um, through silence and persistence and through integration and understanding and what 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 has born out of me from that experience is really I guess it could be summed up in a term or, or two words would be uh, respect and gratitude you know so um, yeah so but I'm sorry I went off on a little tangent Go ahead. I don't think I don't think that you did actually because what you were talking about was sort of the the far reach of this capitalist notion which as we said devalues process looks at outcomes and also sort of sets us in this competitive frame of mind rather than a cooperative frame of mind very problematic very problematic and in fact this ultimately um one thing about my thesis that I'm that I am quite proud of is that I really followed where it led and uh, I didn't try to shape it in a particular way sure, sure. I didn't try to I didn't start out with a hypothesis necessarily I just tried to follow my experience of what it was and then kind of take it where it led me 
and uh, and where that led me was sort of to the core of some of these issues that you've been talking about with this product versus process, this outcome versus uh, you know the experience, the moment to moment experience, yeah. the um, the individual versus the collective, and uh, and really. Because Go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, really, you can see it in motherhood. Yeah. It really becomes like a base relief against this backdrop. Which is perpetuated by the next generation. Exactly. Yeah. And and I think that, you know, most people are fairly, uh, you know, uh, uh, comfortable or uh, have seen will know what I'm talking about when I say like that that it gave rise to this hyper parenting or mm -hmm. helicopter parenting yep, yep. or you know whatever we want to call that. And and basically my conception of that which I ended up exploring pretty in depth in my thesis was this notion that our children too are products that our children too are a reflection of ourselves in and and I don't mean that in a in a in a uh, what do I want to say? I'm not saying that in a judgmental way. I'm saying that in terms of that what my children produce, what they do, how early they walk, how early they talk, how early they read, where they are placed within their class rank. Mm -hmm. That somehow that has seemed to overwhelm the domain of parenting. Right. And um, and that. Which is really born out of a fear of what's going to happen to my child, right? It is, I think, authentically born yeah, yeah. from that, well, from a, a very genuine place. Sure. Absolutely, it's definitely born, and that's why I'm saying, like, when I'm when I'm when I'm speaking in this way, I'm not speaking of it from a place of judgment. No, 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 it's a I place know. of observation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's it's mm -hmm. good to get at that core that it is it is it's it's the very nature of parenting yes. in one sense. Yeah. Yes. So I think that. Um, what I was observing um, within myself was yeah, was exactly this that I wasn't I was losing the moment to moment with my children and focusing instead on getting them you know, reading early and, uh, you know, getting them to like music groups early and doing all of these things because I think in my mind there was, there were a couple things. One, there was, as we were just talking about this sense of like, they need to be accomplished because as a mother, their accomplishment is a reflection of my quality of, a, of being a mother. Sure. That was one aspect of it, but the deeper aspect of it, which took a little bit more layered, uh, peeling away of the layers to get at, at least for me, was the sense of that it really was a way to ameliorate my own anxiety mm. that, you know, from I was born in the seventies and, you know, from that point in time, I grew up with the legacy of girls having equal opportunity. You know, you can be anything you want. You can go to college. You can, you know, the world is your oyster. And sort of to be have the red carpet rolled out before you of feminism and say, okay, this is what you can, you can do anything that you want with your life. The red carpet rolls out in 20 different directions and you go to college and you get good grades and you do whatever you're supposed to do. And then at some point you have children 
and you find that those two worlds don't often coalesce neatly. And so they conflict by their very nature, by their very nature, they often conflict. And, and I, I certainly experienced that conflict. And, um, and so, but because I had children and I felt like, okay, I've had these children and I need to take responsibility for them. I sort of opted out of my academic trajectory that I was on in order to take care of them and take full responsibility for them. And, uh, and so I think that the overparenting that I engaged in was really coming from this place of feeling lost and feeling this, this gnawing anxiety that something was off, but I couldn't identify what that was. And so by continuing to just put my attention on my children, it was a really good way to not really be present with my own experience. And so that's why doing my thesis, I think, on this topic was even more challenging, but also extraordinarily fruitful. Mm. Um, And so going back to my uh, friend, the family doctor, who said, where's the rage? That's when the real work began. Really up to that point, it was, you know, it was an intellectual exercise. And, And when she invited me to explore, really, it was an invitation that that. I don't think I would have permitted myself to do. And so as it happens, you know, which uh, is sadly, you know, was not infrequent where I would get really angry about something, you know, a week later, whatever, from her making this comment to me, um, you know, I remember walking upstairs and finding that the upstairs hallway was completely trashed. You know, the kids had been playing and they just walked away and, you know, there were toys everywhere and it was just a disaster. And that instantly, I mean, it was just instantaneous that this feeling of rage came up in me. And like, it's hard to explain, I think, for people that maybe haven't experienced rage before, but I think most of us have. Um, But, you know, it's like something sort of takes over in you. And it feels very hot and burning. And, and let me just stop you there. Mm-hmm. Eckhart Tolle, if anyone's going to follow up with uh, In the Presence of the Great Mystery or uh, The Power of Now audiobooks, he talks about this very notion also in uh, A New Earth, uh, the pain body. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I'm not. The pain body is an entity, uh, energy. It's just energy mm. that arises that is of itself. Mm. In what what is required for it to dissipate is really attention attention as mm. to what it is mm. mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and and that was exactly my experience mm. I, exactly my experience and i realized that i have to go into this i have to really fully be in this moment of experiencing this rage and yeah. this anger and so i literally sat down on the floor with all of this debris around me and examined, okay, what's, what's immediately arising for me in this moment. And what's immediately arising for me in that moment was, well, I'm too good to be picking up after the kids. Look at, I have, you know, I'm in the middle of a master's degree. I have, you know, a, a, undergraduate degree from an esteemed university and you know I have all of these things like Eckhart Tolle you know just talked about these content formations identity constructs identity constructs and And it doesn't matter whether they're 
educational, right. material, right. spiritual, yep. spiritual constructs yep. of that I'm a spiritual person. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And and to sit in that and to admit that I felt that I felt that cleaning up my children's toys around me was beneath me mm-hmm. was very painful. Mm-hmm. It was a very painful realization of how intractable my ego had become really and so then i was like okay you know wait a minute that's not the end of this and began to peel back the next layer and really as i peeled back layer after layer after layer experientially yeah i sort of arrived at this place of pure nothingness uh-huh. and darkness yeah. and I described it in my thesis and because this is the image that I sank into the experience of it was riding the dragon down and that I literally got on the back of the dragon and let it ride me to the depths yep. and at the depths of that was this profound sense of emptiness uh-huh. And which I think ties that back, go ahead. which exactly no, please go ahead. Yeah. Well, it ties back to the uh, what was the word? Unmoored. Unmoored. Exactly. <laughs> hey, that's not bad, right? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that, to that unmooring. Exactly. So it reminds me of this Sinead O'Connor quote, and it's actually a lyric to a song. I'm sailing on this terrible ocean. I've come for myself to retrieve. Yeah. Absolutely, and yeah. we've shared that song before yeah, together. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and yes, so I think that ironically, this anger that I was experiencing in this moment brought me back to that fundamental, to that fundamental unmooring, that condition that we all share. So whether it's motherhood or being lost in a career that you are maybe a CEO of something and, uh, have this identity formation around being a CEO and all the things associated with that. Right. The responsibility that is driven by a basic survival needs of like, I need to make money to, to provide for my family and whatever, but it juts up against our, our inherent condition, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And so I think for me in that position, there was sort of a, a an ironic laugh perhaps of yeah, like, yeah. well, here we are right back at the beginning again, yep, yep. you know? Yep. Right. And all this, you know, I was 35, 36 at this time and, you know, was like, Oh my God, all that work that I've done. And I'm right back at the same place that I was, you yeah. know, two weeks after I was born. Yep. And, uh, and I think that that, you know, goes back to exactly what we're talking about, about this identity is mm-hmm. that fundamentally we are all unmoored and that we are grasping for the land. We are grasping for the ship to come and rescue us or whatever that is. Absolutely. And. But by its very nature, um, that is true. But there's also the inherent way in which we experience this, which is uh, there's an evolutionary content to things, right? What do you mean by that? Well, that... That it seems like um, in some ways we remain stagnant, but in some ways we evolve. Oh, well, you and I have talked yeah, how yeah. many times about the spiral, yeah. right? Right, right, right. Yeah, exactly. Tell they, us about the spiral. Well, you know, 
and you can sort of elucidate it along the way too, because you and I, in fact, through our conversations, have really sort of helped to flesh this out. Yeah, yeah. So I don't want to claim it no, as no, no, no. you know that I that I understand it in its totality. But um, th yeah, this notion that it might look like we're coming back to the same place again, but really it's it's one step up from that place or right. two steps up from that place. And meaning what I mean by steps up is in awareness that we have a we're and maybe evolving. we're evolving exactly. And maybe actually even a better way to think about it is a that we're deepening. So mm -hmm. rather than moving up, we're moving down, yeah. that there's a deepening moving in, yeah. moving in. Exactly. That's yeah. And, um, and so for me, that's, that's exactly the process that happened in that was this, this deeper sense of awareness of consciousness of, um, wow, I've been trying to like this, all of this parenting, hyper parenting, over parenting that I was doing was really trying to ameliorate this deeper anxiety of being so thoroughly unmoored. Which actually had little to do with your children, probably, although right. they, they were the target. They were the impetus yeah. of it, but they, right, certainly they had nothing to do with it. And, um, and so I think that, uh, you know, the shift then for me became how do I how do I be as present with myself in my role as a parent mm -hmm. as I possibly can be? Right. And the other sort of irony, I think, that evolved from this awakening was the sense of I am so disconnected from my own child, yeah. my own inner Absolutely. child, my own childhood. Yeah. I don't know how to be with them in of this course, place of, of chaos, of wonder, of, of wonder, wonder, of yeah. awe, of, um, of, you know, I, I've lost that sense of play Yeah. and, and really that there's something about them teaching you, them teaching me precisely. Right. Yeah. And so I think that something in that paradigm switched for me right. of like, wait a minute, I need to, to like shore up, so yeah, to yeah. speak yeah, yeah. to them yeah, and let them teach me, absolutely. let them be the lighthouse for yeah, me absolutely. rather than me sort of, you know, knowing, okay, this is where the anchor is and, right. you know, come here, yeah. that it really was a paradigm shift for yeah. me significantly. Because we talk about, we've talked about value and truth, right? Mm -hmm. But inherently... Inherently, because each being has value, no matter where they are in the process, our work is to honor and respect that. Absolutely. Right? And in that respecting others, we come to really respect ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah. And I also felt that it was really important for me to um, begin to serve as a model in that regard of being fully present with myself yes. to model being a mo to model for them them being fully present with themselves yeah. that if i can't be fully present with myself i am tacitly disapproving of them being present with themselves sure, sure. and like how can i switch that paradigm yeah. to to say that this is this is the way that uh to move through the world in such a way as you can find your authentic self yeah i was thinking readily. when you started this this uh this train of thought mm that uh, it really boils down to uh, genuineness and authenticity, yeah? And Absolutely. And so it, it, it can be manifest in motherhood, but it can also be manifest in a street sweeper, 
or someone homeless. Absolutely. As well as a president. Yes. Um, so that it, it these these uh, in this play that we are all experiencing, um, the roles that we take are much less significant than how we relate in a deep experiential way to those roles through genuineness and authenticity. Yeah. And I think to use those roles as guideposts, yeah. you know, for our own authenticity. Well, recognizing the inherent power differential that exists in society. And, you know, I, m my favorite poet is always, always, and he's here with us tonight, <laughs> um, Rumi. And uh, Rumi was well known for um, honoring children. There was a way of greeting adults and there was a way of greeting children and he used to take the time to honor the children as adults in a very uh like respectful way mm -hmm. and uh so i think that that's a great teaching that i mean of all the things that rumi left behind that is one one great one mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. i think that um that the, the valuing of that of that process of children is is uh beings unto themselves whole and complete you know so yeah that's cool um what else lisa um 